Hi, everyone. Today is January 31st. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. Uh, our guest today is Liberty Hamilton. Hi, Liberty. Hi. Uh, she's an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin, where she holds joint appointments in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders and also at the Department of Neurology at the Dell Medical School. Her lab uses human electrocorticography, ECOG, uh, and machine learning tools to investigate how the human brain processes and represents speech. Um, around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Nicole Witcha. Hi. Hey. So you're using the acoustic features of speech to map speech perception and ultimately production. Can you sort of talk about this continuum of how, of how it is you parse acoustics to linguistics and sort of flesh some of that out for us and how you delimit the problem? Yeah, so my I guess my background is in very low-level auditory cortical physiology in rodent models. And so I'm sort of inspired by the work of looking at a more complex system using sort of simple parts. And so we start with looking at this early spectrotemporal decomposition, which is what we think happens even as early as the ear. And so we're taking speech sounds, which are all made up of different spectral and temporal features, uh, and those can give us the pitch of a person's voice. They can give us information about what vowel sounds they may be saying. And that is all related to different uh, differences in the power in different frequency bands and those relative to one another. Um, and so I think about it as kind of going from just very <coughs> simple properties like sine wave pure tones, then adding those together to get something like a chord, and then you can get even more complicated and get something like a speech sound. Um, of course, in the area of auditory cortex that I'm looking at, um, it's, it's not responsive to uh, just the simple components of the spectral features or the temporal features, but there are actually categorizations that happen so that you can tell that a person who is saying an ah in a low-pitched voice, and a person who's saying an ah in a high-pitched voice, that's the same phoneme. Uh, and so part of that process is mapping spectrotemporal features to uh, phonetic features, and that's, a, I guess, a nonlinear mapping. Um, but that's, that's one of the things that we know is happening in the area of the brain that I'm really interested in, which is superior temporal gyrus. Your question about speech production um, and how those two relate. Uh, I, I mean, so when we think about how we produce speech, that also involves us moving our lips and our jaw and tongue and activating the larynx uh, and all these different articulators in order to produce speech sounds. And those will have different acoustic characteristics, uh, whether we are a small child or a large man. Um, and so all of those, you know, the physical characteristics of our body are also going to affect how we produce speech sounds. Um, and we can see the kind of neural responses to those movements in that make up speech in the motor cortex, but we can also see the responses to the acoustic consequences of those movements, both in motor cortex and in the, uh, in the auditory cortex. So the motor end of this is really anchored and stereotyped, and and um, you know there there are only there's a certain repertoire of skeletally and muscularly things that we can do, but speech itself it seems like is is 
so flexible. Mm -hmm. uh, speech patterns change over the course of time and development. Just, so can you can you just kind of bear some of that out for yeah. us? Yeah, so I will mention the development component is very new and also new to me. So all of my, uh, my background in ECOG was all with adults. And now I'm working with populations that are, uh, it's during development, so it's kids from age four to uh, teenage age. Um, and so at that point, the very simple features like acoustic selectivity, that's mostly already been established. And so then you're looking at higher order properties or temporal judgments of order that, that are going to be changing. Um, and now I've forgotten the question that you asked. Well, I, got, I wonder if, it, yeah, I was, I was wondering if, if this is a, like you, the way you're talking about how, you know, how many differences there are like between large men and little kids and stuff like this. Like, I wonder that we can understand each other at all, right? That it's the same thing as speech. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting when you talk about development because you have certainly the self-produced uh, acoustics are changing over time. And you can tell the difference. So there's there's some things that are invariant, mm -hmm. right? That, that is speech. And there's some things that are different. And it's important to know whether some big person is talking or a little person is talking. And are those like kind of orthogonal? I mean, so you want to see what's invariant in one sense and what's different in another versus some invariants, like some overall acoustic invariances. And so how do you deal with that, kind of those two different things? Yeah, so actually we had a study that came out um, in 2017 that was looking at, so the, the lead author is Claire Tang, and that's out of uh, Edward Chang's lab. And we were looking at pitch variation uh, and prosody, so how people say the same sentence. And the point there was, as you said, we know that we can perceive the same sentence spoken by multiple different speakers, whether they're a child or an adult, and you still know that it's the same phonetic information, but it can be said with a high-pitched voice or a low-pitched <clears throat> voice, an angry voice or a happy voice. It can be, you can have something that could be said as a question or not, depending on how you inflect your voice. And so one really interesting thing we found with that is that there seem to be different brain areas for absolute pitch, which would be being able to tell that it's a high-pitched voice versus a low-pitched voice. And then there are other regions that are dispersed in, it's really in a similar area of the cortex, but it's for us it was different electrodes in this electrocorticography setup, but they uh, will respond to the relative pitch of someone's voice. And so that would be you're sort of normalizing to an individual speaker's voice. So regardless of if it was a child with a really high squeaky voice or a low-pitched uh, male voice, then you will still see the same response to those very non-overlapping pitches. But if they are, if their intonation is exactly the same, then you have some areas of the brain that just follow that intonation. And I think that's also really interesting to think about in terms of, you know, we can get used to hearing speakers with different accents or, uh, yeah, Dr. Weecha works on bilingualism. And so you can also have different phonetic boundaries depending on which language is your native language, or even you can switch between different languages and know the difference between a ba sound and a pa sound in Spanish versus English. They're a little different, but you still know what you're listening to. Um, and so... 
there definitely are brain areas that we've found that do that. And I think that's yeah, really very fascinating. So re regarding that, um, I'm just curious about some of your research has shown that there are s electrodes that are specifically, specifically sensitive to particular phoneme or phoneme categories. Yeah. And, and then combined with whether it's the beginning of the sound or it's the continuation of the sound. And so, but there seems to be some sensitivity to these categories of sounds. Um, and I was, it immediately makes me think about the phonetic categories work and how um, each one of us who speaks a certain language has, through very early in development, established a set of phonetic, phonemic categories um, that restrict what we can hear in sound and speak specifically. So we don't hear Japanese sounds or Japanese sounds, people speaking don't hear our sounds, uh, certain, if they're not within our categorical boundaries. Um, do you think that, I mean, it just made me wonder, because I always thought of that process of these phonemic categories as a very high-level process, mm -hmm. but it sounds like you could derive this from the cells that you have at very really early levels of auditory cortex, so I was just wondering what the connection would be between the, or do you think, without going into the theoretical boundaries, you don't want to go to? Right, right. I, I, I mean, I think there are, <clears throat> there is definitely work showing that even if you categorically perceive, so you could, one experiment that people like to do is creating uh, morphs from a ba to a paw, and then you have something in between and you have to categorize it as either ba or pa. And people will do this and have very sort of steep curves for, okay, all of these are definitely pa and all of these are definitely ba. Uh, there's a postdoc um, from uh, Eddie Chang's lab uh, who has been looking at that specifically, the voice onset time continuum, and showing that there are still areas that respond to those in-between uh, categories. You can still see that even though people are making the decision to categorize it. So it's possible that some of that information is still there. I don't, I can't say exactly how that higher order uh, decision is made because it does look like in the neural activity it's not necessarily exactly the same response for the morphs even though you are reporting them as being perceptually pretty Distinct. much yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I have a question kind of about the really fundamental thing I guess about the functional organization of the brain. So yeah. we're used to saying there's a auditory cortex and that's a part of the brain that it has a a common function. And then um, it's common also for people to report when they're looking at neurons within a region to see some gradient like a tonotopic map, say, in the auditory cortex that causes a gradual change in function. Mm -hmm. But in but as we place smaller and smaller electrodes closer and closer together and recording field potentials, can we end up saying there was a one millimeter cube of auditory cortex whose job was to t detect the phoneme ba? Is that is that where we're going with this? I guess partially. I mean, there there we have talked about. I've talked about this with a number of different researchers. Where you know, how much would we get if we just kept making the electrodes smaller and smaller, and then would we really find that there is, um, like you said, a patch of cortex that just responds to ba, and it seems like uh, if you do have higher density recordings, you will see more electrodes next to each other that are 
tuned to the same thing. Um, so that's possible. Although at the same time, I think of some of the mouse work that um, I used to be closer to what I was doing. And, and there people have reported that for the mouse auditory cortex, you have this on a macro scale, you see tonotopy. Um, and if you were to record, you'll see the progression from low to high frequency across the cortical map. But then if you recorded individual neurons that are next to each other, they are kind of, it's kind of salt and pepper and it's, it's actually not very, uh, they're not all doing the same thing. And so I don't know, with our method, I think it's really hard to say whether that's true or not because we aren't able to resolve the individual neurons. So it's possible that there's a larger population that's doing that, but then maybe around them, there's, there's very uh, different selectivity to, to other So you think it's possible that, in, you know, that, that recording from individual neurons is kind of a red herring and that mm. because I hear people all the time talking about population responses and stuff they don't really think that individual neurons are important so if there's a if there was a one millimeter cube and there was a lot of variation among neurons in that cube but it turns out that that's just an accident because neurons are crazy and random and that what was really important was just the average of everything in mm -hmm. there, and that's what you're picking up with the with the field potential. You think it's gonna it's possible it could end up like that? We would end up saying, "Oh gosh, we're sure sorry. We spent so much time looking at something." Else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I I hope that I would think there still is a lot that can be learned from the the single neuron level, but um, certainly how neurons communicate in networks is, I think, really the next sort of important question uh, beyond just, yeah, what's the single neuron properties? It's more like in this local cube of cortex, how are these neurons connected together to produce that population response? Are these other, I mean, maybe by having those other differently tuned neurons that allows you to better normalize to other types of speakers or to, um, respond to changes in the acoustic input rather than just always responding in the same way. Uh, so maybe it gives the circuit a little bit more flexibility. Um, I don't know if So what, you the signal that you record in a, in a field potential like that, what, what's it telling you about what the neurons in that little place in cortex are doing? What's, what's right. known about the relationship between the neurons and the field potential? So from what I've uh, what I have read recently, so it was it was first thought that the local field potential signals that were being recorded from ECOG were related to multi-unit firing, but that's generally the outputs of cells. And actually, more recently, some work has been done to suggest that perhaps the what's being reflected in the local field potential in ECOG is related to the the inputs to the cell so more like what is coming from the dendrites of the superficial layers of the cortex so it's it's still yeah i mean i think they're i don't know what else to say <laughs> but so one of the things that you did like uh so we've been looking at high gamma in a certain frequency right. range and right. then all of this is that's the activity right and then say can you discriminate between different uh, acoustic responses or features and so forth. So have you looked at, uh, is that 
because uh, you could test all of them, how well is a given frequency range at making uh, peak discrimination maps versus all stuff that all mushed together. Uh, and is it, I mean, one way you just get more signal that way, or I mean, there's some trivial explanations, but is it really true that high gamma is the thing that really distinguishes things in the local field potential? So for the models that I've looked at, it's definitely much better than looking at the broadband or the low frequency signals. Uh, the power in high gamma fluctuates much more quickly than the lower frequency signals, which also just, I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> this is a fundamental property of the signals. But the if you were to, what you can do is, so for some of the models that we fit, we are taking either acoustic features or phonetic features and then trying to predict an electrode's activity uh, based on what, what was happening in the speech signal before that. Uh, and if we do that with the lower frequency, lower frequency activity, those models are not very predictive. So, I mean, maybe that means that that low frequency activity is doing something else. It has a different functional role, but at least in terms of what sort of neural responses are locked to acoustic uh, signals or envelope features of speech, it, it really seems like high gamma is the um, most predictive, um, <coughs> or you get the, the best predictive models by using that rather than the broadband signal. Um, if you looked at just the low frequency signals, then that can give you a sense of the overall envelope. Uh, and actually people who do um, EEG will use delta band signals. So delta and theta band signals are, have been shown to track the auditory envelope um, in EEG studies. And so I find that interesting because those are much lower frequency than high gamma, but you can't get high gamma with uh, an EEG setup because it's filtered through the skull. But those, so there's something, they, they seem slightly decorrelated if you, if you just look at the broadband spectrum, but I think there are still some faster fluctuations that you're not able to capture with a low frequency activity. I have a technical question since yeah. I am an EEG person. Um, we always talk about the the gains that you get from being on the surface of the brain, but you know it still comes with a lot of um, complications of being of them being local field potentials. With uh, one of the issues that we deal with is a dipole may not actually even be under your electrode; it may be somewhere completely different in the brain and just a big source mm -hmm. uh, pointing in your direction. Um, how? What is really the the benefit? I mean, I know you're an ECOG person, not an EG person, so I'm just like sell your your method a little. And like, what what is what? How much do you really gain from being on the surface of the brain? Right. Uh, well, I think the the spatial localization is, to my view, very. Why don't we talk? Just describe it for. Oh, okay. a bit, just for our listeners. Okay, so electrocorticography uh, is a method where, so we're working with patients with intractable epilepsy, and uh, there are patients who've gone in for epilepsy surgery after having failed, tried and failed at least three medications. And so it's an elective surgery where they have electrodes placed on the surface of their brain or into their brain. There are sometimes depth electrodes, and that's... A, slightly different type of surgery. And then those will be placed in areas where the clinicians have pre-identified are probably near 
the, the seizure onset zone where their seizures are starting. Um, but they obviously don't fully know yet, and that's why they do uh, the electrocorticography, is to really narrow down what specific areas of brain tissue are causing seizures, where, where do the seizures originate, where do they spread, and then what they would do is they would resect uh, the margins of that seizure onset zone. And this type of surgery, it sounds crazy, but it's, it's really effective at helping people with these very difficult cases um, either drastically reduce their seizures or even eliminate them entirely. And the hope is that uh, you also want to do this type of surgery without affecting motor function or language function. And so often this uh, technique is done in temporal lobe epilepsy, and the temporal lobe is also very important for language, speech and language. Uh, it's also, um, you'll also sometimes have electrodes over motor areas, which are important for movement. And so the clinicians will make a very concerted effort to map out both of those areas to see what areas are critical for speech and language function, whether produced speech or perceived, um, and make sure that those are not taken out in the surgery. Um, so, so that's... Nicole's technical question about gains relative to... Yes. The so the, the gains are that the... So if you were to look for... So this is maybe now going to sound a little bit circular, but the, the spatial localization is pretty striking. If you were to look at... You can just create uh, a, sort of like an ERP for single syllables, let's say. So you can have a task where you have someone listening to a bunch of consonant vowel syllables and then repeating them back. And then you look at what are the brain signals while they were hearing and then what are the brain signals while they're repeating. And you can see very obvious um, delimited areas that are, you know, this sensory area when they're listening, it's basically all of superior temporal gyrus and not very many other places. And the motor cortex, you know, also has very strong uh, obvious response before the motor action is made. So whereas with EEG, uh, I've just started doing EEG in my lab and I've seen that even when you have an auditory response, those signals can come from a very distributed, uh, distributed sensors on the scalp. So just because it's over the temporal uh, cortex doesn't mean that's the only area that's responding to an acoustic stimulus. And obviously for things like auditory brainstem response, you can do that just from the top of the head, and that's still an auditory response. So yeah, the spatial localization, it's, it's just much easier to make claims about where different responses are coming from. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's a huge benefit. Uh, the obvious, I mean, there are also disadvantages, which is obviously well, you, also, you mentioned the one about the frequencies, that there's certain frequencies that are going to be filtered out naturally by, yes. the, by this. Yes, and, that too. Yeah. So this, the high gamma signal that we were talking about is also, um, I've actually tried to see in EEG, if you record at a high enough sampling rate, could you get high gamma? And it looks like there's not very much that is repeatable in that range. Yeah. So the skull is really, yeah, acting mm -hmm. as a... Mm -hmm. Yeah, very so, effective I think, filter. I think you're going to the to the disadvantages now. That the obvious, the one that I, I mean, I'm always wondered about is, you're studying an area of the brain that actually has a problem, mm -hmm. and so you're so how reliable is that? Yeah, 
that no, that that's issue. A, that's that's an <laughs> issue. Seems for, like it would be a source of variability for sure. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. So there are a couple things that we do to mitigate that concern, which is that uh, we do exclude any electrodes in our research analyses that are known to be part of that seizure onset zone. Mm -hmm. So if someone's seizure onset zone was in posterior <coughs> superior temporal gyrus, we definitely wouldn't include that. Uh, we also exclude any time periods of interictal activity. If you see those spikes on the intracranial EEG, then those are not included in the analysis. We can't say for sure. So there are definitely changes that could happen to the language network as a result of epilepsy. And especially in the current work that I'm doing during development, it's known that if you have epilepsy as a child, that can also affect language lateralization and, and development of language in general. So that is, um, that is still definitely a concern. Um, although I have also looked at uh, patients that are undergoing tumor surgery. Uh, and so then that's uh, not epilepsy related, mm -hmm. but then we still see similar types of responses in their brains. So I think that these... The types of uh, acoustic and phonetic tuning that we see, I don't, I don't think are um, just as a result of, uh, you know, the epilepsy affecting the network. But at the same time, um, you know, I can't say for one hundred percent sure that um, that isn't affecting our results okay. in some way. So I think relating this type of work to uh, other other modalities, so uh, non-invasive modalities like EEG or even fMRI, uh, if we can see these same types of responses uh, with, with those methods, which uh, people have seen uh, phonetic tuning as well with EEG and with fMRI in people without epilepsy. So I don't think that's an artifact, but yeah, we do, we do have to keep that in mind. You know, so, I want to get back to something <clears throat> kind of crazy back to Charlie's uh -huh. question a little bit <laughs> next, a little bit higher level about how uh, much you see, you think these features are actually mapped. Because like, if you had some random things mm -hmm. and the properties aren't uh, uniformly distributed, then everything will be mapped to some degree, right? Um, I mean, do you imagine that, that, uh, that these pretty local regions on a, you know, half centimeter scale are, are kind of really mapped. They're, they're this feature and not so much over there would be really different for the next feature. So somewhat, but it does seem that for phonetic features, it's, it's not just one area that is responding to one feature. You know, there's sort of distributed areas that will respond to one feature, but there's a blob here and then there's another blob there. And, and so it's not just one feature, one area. And that is also, I think, good in terms of thinking about dam potential damage to the network and being able to compensate for that. There are certainly cases of people who've had lesions where, you know, any number of crazy things can happen where suddenly you stop being able to perceive consonants, but that's not very common. And, and so I think having them more distributed is, is helpful in that way. Um, but I, I think it does seem like there are sort of small functional modules. So this gets back to the crazy part of my, of my comment. So I'm a birdsong person, mm -hmm. so they, they, you know, like they can cool the 
songbird brain, and then you can slow down uh, production, right? And so I know that that uh, Michael Long has been working yeah. with someone in, I uh, in Iowa to to look in the speech parts for, mm -hmm. to do the analogous thing that you actually cool the brain and have them talk, and then they slow down for the things that are functionally uh, changed by cooling the brain, and that are really critical for speech. I was wondering if you had your your ecog network on there, you record there, and you think, oh, this is this area is really sensitive to this uh, fricative or something like that, and then you put a really a cooling device right, right next to that electrode, would they be you know deficient in, in perceiving fricatives and not mm -hmm. like veilers or whatever, right? Whether you really can imagine doing that experiment. Do you think that would, do you think it would work? Besides no, besides no, that it's <laughs> so, a crazy thing? It's not that crazy. So we have not, so I, the long uh, study is absolutely fascinating. I, I, I think they have some of those sounds online as well that you can listen to and you can hear the purrs and, you know, really slow down their speech and the same with the birds. And so I think that's an amazing convergence of, of findings there and really fascinating. I think they were cooling in inferior frontal gyrus areas. Um, but if we were to do, so we haven't done cooling, but there has been a little bit of work trying to do the opposite, which is stimulation. Um, and so stimulation is often used to interrupt the circuit, even though, I don't know, there's arguments about whether, you know, are you activating those neurons more or are you just sort of messing everything up by stimulating them? And for language mapping, they, it's mostly the sort of temporary disruption of the circuit through stimulation. And so uh, we tried a few um, tasks like that. This is not, not published. I don't know whether... <laughs> Do you want to talk about? <laughs> no, whether it should be on the podcast, but uh, I guess. don't know if they want me to talk about it. Um, but they, I mean, so far, I the results were not that strong. So the just stimulating one of those, so you could stimulate single electrodes on the grid, and it didn't seem to have much of an effect if it was just sort of one small area. There are a lot on of production factors. or perception. This is on perception. So can you affect the perception by? Uh, stimulating while they're listening to yeah, a fricative and you stimulate a fricative area. And it seemed like that particular experiment didn't work, but it, you know, it's, there are a lot of parameters that you have to consider, like the amount of current delivered and the pulse waveforms that you're using. And so it could be for a number of reasons. Um, I, I think the more, so if you did want to do this with cooling, then maybe uh, being able to cool multiple areas at once that are sensitive to the same uh, feature would be more effective than just one of those because I imagine that it seems like there's compensatory me mechanisms that allow you to do without mm -hmm. if it's just one. So. so in building brain decoders, it's a cool thing that everybody's doing and I read, I read a dozen papers about it a year, even though it's not my field. Mm -hmm. And almost all of them are, are touted as scientists can read our minds. Right? <laughs> I can tell what you're looking at. I can tell what you're listening to. I can tell what you're about to do by decoding your brain activity. So is that accurate? I mean, can you really decode uh, people's, say I have those electrodes. Mm -hmm. You could decode and features. you could tell what I was listening to. Not very hearing. well yet. <laughs> so 
it depends. I think a lot of them rely on having a very good training set and having training data. So I think for people who are really worried that their brains are going to be decoded without their consent, I think that's that's very hard to do at this point. What about people who are hoping that brains will be decoded with their consent? Then, right. So I think we're still, we've made some gains, but the the accuracy of the decoders still leaves something to be desired, I would say. I I think that, um, so there are a number of different philosophies of how to build a decoder, one of which, so with the things like the P300 speller, with EEG, if you were just trying to pick out uh, letters on a screen and then spell something out, then that's one way to do it. And that that works fairly well, but it's really slow. Um, And also time consuming if you have to spell everything. If you're trying to read out neural activity uh, to directly reconstruct what someone is thinking, we're at the point where you can get some of the features, but of a lot, a lot of it also relies on having good language models, so that it, kind of like predictive text for your brain. So if we have predicted this word, then we can narrow down what are the other possible words that could follow. And so I think that that is important. Uh, but then also with things like ECOG, we have found that having more electrodes, more coverage of neurons with different tuning properties is really helpful for building a better decoder. Because if you just have one one electrode there, you can't really get enough information to get a good uh, representation of what that person is trying to say. So I, I hope that we will get there. I kind of wonder whether it will also require Uh, So people have thought about putting electrodes either in the motor cortex or in temporal lobe cortex, but it it seems like actually some combination of both would be helpful in these communicative devices rather than a, uh, you know, you, you basically need to have some happy medium between lots of electrodes in one small area and distributed electrodes across a wide region and, you know. So if in one of these sorry in one of these studies, if you say we are fifty percent accurate, mm-hmm. what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that there were like sixteen possible sentences and we guessed them, you know, eight uh, <laughs> eight times? Right. Or does that mean that I made any sentence that a human being might possibly ever hear here, and I and the thing decoded them right fifty percent of the time? It's usually the former. So usually there is a closed set of sentences or of phonemes. Uh, so there have been some decoders that work specifically on... Uh, so the nice the, thing about phonemes is there's kind of a closed set of There's phonemes. a closed set, yeah. The so bad that's, thing about words is it's a much larger set. Yes, yes. And the phonemes aren't the same when you embed them in words. So they're... Right. They, they sound a lot different. Right. And then some of the decoders, they will decode the phonemes, and then you really have to have that language model that says, does this sequence of phonemes actually make sense? Because otherwise you might decode, you know, and then that's not a word. And so maybe one of those phonemes was correct, but nothing is going to be understood from that utterance. And so I, this is kind of related to something we were chatting about earlier with 
sort of acoustic versus higher order representations. And I think people are moving toward thinking about semantic decoders instead, where can you, instead of trying to literally decode what is the phoneme that someone is trying to say uh, based on imagined movement of articulators or imagining hearing a sound, can we just have more a more holistic or go right to the meaning go part to the of the idea brain. yeah where's the meaning part of it yeah <laughs> it's everywhere yeah that's <laughs> this is why labels are so interesting because yeah. it's a completely divorced from the acoustic or ph phonetic properties of the yeah. concept right yeah. yeah but the other thing that, it's, that and i know this is just it's a multi-dimensional problem and that you're trying to reduce things but ultimately communication is a, is a two-way operation and language it's and speech are are, a, are an input-output type thing. Mm -hmm. And do you imagine that there's any way that we can start looking at, like I assume that you know, it's the same real estate in the cortex that's sort of doing the perceptual as well as language production operation at some level and higher up in the cortex. Is there ever gonna come a point, do you think, can you imagine how to sort of pull some of this out in, a, in an experimental framework and that you could sort of concurrently map perception, perception and the semantic transformation and, and whatever cognitive thing is happening and then the speech production part. I mean, it's such a massive right. exercise. But, you know, in the visual system, it's, you know, you can sort of map a 2D thing from the retina and then you can move your hand into space and you can sort of try to get through the, it's a tractable thing to get mm -hmm. through the circuit. But semantics. how do you imagine to Visual semantics is not more tractable a, than any yeah, other Once you get past the retina, the well, V1. <laughs> you can reduce it to at least an input-output out, operation that makes sense in terms of coordinates, mm -hmm. uh, coordinate frames, right, at least. Is there a way to reduce the complexity of this or look at it simultaneously? Because the two things are studied so divorced from one another, but, they're, but you're like right up at that interface mm -hmm. where you're looking at this feature space, but clearly there's another... There's another set of dimensions there that are being coded that you're getting so close to with yeah. the phonetics, but crossing over to the semantic side is. I mean, how does one do that, or how will that happen? Or yeah. will it happen? I mean, we definitely can do that, and I think that's one of the reasons that I like to use more naturalistic stimuli in the tasks that we do. Is you can get all of those levels of representation from the acoustic to the phonetic and early linguistic stuff to semantics and meaning. I think the reason I don't do it as much with the ECOG recordings that I have is simply because of the coverage that we have. So the brain areas that we're recording from are generally more low level. And I think to get to those semantic representations, we would need more of middle temporal gyrus, more frontal lobe, more just everywhere else. <laughs> so I think that's uh, where other methods come in. I don't know if you want to chime in. What, what on any happens of this? in the, the, the nonverbal brain as it transitions into a, a verbal it's brain? It's never nonverbal. Sorry? I know. That's what I, thought. I, was, I, was, I was hoping to say It's never nonverbal. Yeah. There's always communication, right? It's, yeah. Speech is just a uh, one. Yeah. But the other factor is that it's not a one-way street, right? Like, there's information influencing your perception of the sounds mm -hmm. at the lower level coming from semantic regions. So it's yeah. wherever those are. <laughs> so, it's, so it's sort of, you're looking at it assuming that it's only input. 
Um, but there is also probably top-down information that's telling you what does this sound sound like. Yes. And so yeah, and expectation plays a yeah. huge role, and we were talking about that <clears throat> earlier. And so we have looked at you know you can even have the same acoustics you can insert white noise instead of a phoneme into a word and people can perceive that uh, with yeah there's this perceptual fill-in effect Uh, and so that's exactly the same acoustics but perceived entirely different depending on which sentence you are uh, saying or you're imagining is going to be said all right well I I think we're out of time, unfortunately. And we'll have you back yeah. to talk more, hopefully. Um, I think you're just you're yeah. in your first year. At, at, I just I'm in my second year right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on the lab, and thank, thank you for you. joining us, everyone. Uh, this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm-hmm.